Hey folks, Mark Scroggins, Andrew Johnson here with a brand new podcast that we're doing. This is going to be called Love and Money in Texas. So as you can imagine, uh, we're going to cover a lot of different things. I'm board certified in family law, so I am a divorce lawyer, child custody lawyer, property division, all that kind of stuff. Andrew is with Paragon Wealth, and um, he's the money guy. So in the, in the money space, you know, we cover a lot of things, but I'm obviously an SEC registered investment advisor uh, and, and managing partner of Paragon Private Wealth Group. Our biggest objective is is to you know know the money, know our clients intimately in that in that space, but really look at it holistically and, and appropriately. So we do, right, we do that right. So I think Mark and I really bonded over the idea that we have great conversations when you and I just talk. So right. Why yeah. Don't we expound this onto something that, that makes a lot of sense from a topical standpoint. Well, you know, and one of the things we were talking about just a little bit ago was, so we just had this change of regime, right? Uh, and I will be the first to say that I think, you know, if Trump could have gotten the hell off Twitter, that would have been really nice. If he had acted presidential, <laughs> if he wouldn't have been such an idiot about a lot of things. Um, but now it doesn't seem to me that Biden's talking much about anything with the economy. Everything's no. about COVID. What are your thoughts? I mean, COVID and this apparent lack of leadership so far from just addressing the country, making people feel assured that with a new leader in office, it makes sense. You know, it was pretty aggressive to me to step into office and sign 15 to 20 executive orders that eliminated American jobs right off the bat and then uh, really created a lot of kind of anti-American ideologies with foreign countries Im imposing their will upon us again, which is, you know, love or hate Trump. He had kind of this idea of American exceptionalism that was creeping back into politics, which in, in for a long time, I feel like we've been taking advantage of as a country. So it was nice to see have it be a different viewpoint in that office for once. Yeah. So. Well, and I, I don't, I don't disagree with you there. I think, you know, you and I politically are probably a little different on the spectrum, but, uh, but what I do want to uh, let everybody know, we're going to talk about topical things like this. And, and so if you have questions, you know, you're going to be able to email me, at Mark at Scroggins Law Group or Andrew. At Paragon Private Wealth Group. So those are things we want to, you know, we want to hear about. But one of the things we want to talk about a little bit, and it sounds kind of, you know, kind of funny. Uh, so now you've got this big, you know, Kanye and Kim Kardashian divorce. <laughs> Holy shit. What are we going to do without those two together, right? So from a money standpoint, because if my recollection serves correctly, not to say that it necessarily does, but I seem to remember that when when Kim Kardashian, uh, you know, like her or hate her, man, she has developed an empire. She's a branding yeah. machine. I mean, amazing. But she was worth a hell of a lot more than her husband sure. uh, when they got married. And now I just read an article yesterday talking about Kanye might be worth somewhere between six and six point six billion. You know, I mean, he's just created an empire on his own, and this is a guy that is certainly. I think created one of the most interesting public personas in, in modern history. Yeah. Uh, I think it all surprised us with the way that he leans politically too. You wouldn't expect that from somebody who is surrounded by uh, the, the liberal Hollywood elite. Yeah. But I, I think it's probably one of the most uh, expensive divorce cases on record that's going to be around. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I'm sure you'd be jealous you don't have that case. <laughs> I am jealous that I don't have that case. You're damn right I am. Yeah, that would be, um, that'd be wonderful. You know, so, for, so from a money standpoint, okay, if you were, um, what would you be telling a client that's going through a divorce of, hey, you know, you've got these various business interests. What, what are important things from a, a wealth management standpoint, a um, 
being able to maintain as much wealth as possible. What are going to be important things while you're going through a divorce for that person to look at? Sure. I think it's going to be prioritizing what's most important to you first. Right. Because I think with a lot of business owners, there's a huge emotional element to what they build. It's, it's sure. their child. So when you become divorced, you are threatening the very nature of that beast. Right. And I think that particularly you can speak to this a lot more intelligently than I can in terms of structuring it. Right. However, I think just if you can plan for this, I know it's hard for some folks, but right. if you're going to start a business while you're with uh, someone that you love dearly, right. and you know that that's trending toward a marriage eventually, right. it's great to rip the bandit off and say the beginning of that, I know you can't look at it now, but still, I mean, he built, he built you know, Yeezys. I mean, there, there's so many different offshoots of his brand that have created that wealth. For him. Exactly. And I, I, I just, I'm just curious how the equity stakes positioned. I mean, I... I you know, so the interesting thing from my standpoint as a divorce lawyer would be, uh, and I can't imagine that there wasn't one, is to, to find out if there was a prenup. You know, and um, when I say prenup, I mean, you know, a premarital agreement, a prenuptial agreement. That's what most people are familiar with hearing about. And a prenup can, you know, run the gamut. You know, it can be where you just are basically acting as an insurance policy to establish that, you know, everything you owned prior to marriage uh, was yours and you're just trying to keep that. Where that really becomes important is when you start talking about different businesses and, um, you know, if they start throwing off different subs and different things of that sort, it can all get a little complicated. Another thing that makes it interesting is, you know, Texas is a community property state, which makes it very different than the others, although it's not necessarily going to mean that your division is going to be that much different unless you're in some really jacked up state like California, for example, where, you know, you're going to pay spousal maintenance forever uh, and at extremely outrageous amounts. I mean, those are the things everybody, you know, hears about and is scared to death when they come in my office. You know, it's like, God, am I going to be in the, you know, a box, but be, the, the nicest box under the, you know, under, under the road. But what, what's, what's that going to look like? Sure. So. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to think about when you look at a, a, a monumental divorce like that. But in going back to your initial question about, hey, what would you do money-wise? Sure. Boy, that's tough because I think it's just about keeping the business alive first and foremost. You're going to have to really sacrifice liquidity right. probably right. to be able to keep that alive. And having an insurable interest, too, is really important as well. I know right. that's a bit of a different story from the divorce, but this kind of easily leads into the topic that, you know, I, this is kind of a funny story, but my uh, my business partner and I were playing golf a few days ago, right. and uh, we had a few beers. You know, it was it was a good time out there, and and uh, the course was actually slick from due in the morning, right. And uh, my partner made a bit of a cut, a sharp cut turn on the fairway, and he flipped the golf cart. So it was uh, awesome. I, I ran I up to him that. and I said, "Hey, Alan, are you okay? I mean, right. I, 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 do I need to call an ambulance?" Like, and he was just sitting there, a bit of a shock, and I was like, "Are you right, man? You good?" He goes. Yeah, I, I think I'm all right. And so immediately, of course, I whipped out my phone, grabbed the picture, and uh, now I, I blew that up. It's going to be on our picture in our office now, in my, in my uh, side of my office. But what I'm getting to for this entire story is that <laughs> it is so important for you to insure your interests as well. And that's right. what I see with a lot of business owners is that they don't protect themselves right. in case of divorce. Because I know if you have a spouse that then inherits that equity that that partner passes away, mm -hmm. that's a nightmare scenario. Right. And that I think you probably addressed that too, but it all wraps up into the idea that, wow, where are we going to be in a divorce? Protect your equity interests with a prenup. So I think that actually leads into a very interesting area, which is 
So I do a lot of really high-end divorces, okay? Sure. And so where there's a lot of money involved. And so you're dealing with, um, you know, these really, really big property divisions. The thing that is unique, and let's assume that we, let's either assume that there's not a, um, that these businesses are not separate, okay? That they were created during the marriage. So let's assume also that it's in Texas and we're dealing with community. But generally, so what a court can do with that business is really three different things, right? They can divide in kind, which means I can't make a decision. You two are each going to own 50% of it. You can award it to one spouse and have them, you know, try to make up the rest of the assets somewhere else or do that once again with the other spouse. Who's going to try to stay husband and wife, but that might not be considered uh, very PC at this point. Sure. So where I run into problems on this, and I think a lot of lawyers don't understand the complexity of it, okay? Let's say that you've got a business that's worth $20 million, all right? And wife has always been the one who has run the company, okay? And just killed it, right? Started during the marriage, she's got to pay husband approximately $10 million out of that. And there's not enough out of other assets um, whatever form they may take, intellectual property, you know, uh, a regular trade account, uh, sure. you know, liquidity, stuff for retirement, whatever. Sure. But the liquidity's not there. So what do you do, right? Because just getting an agreement, a contract that says that, what does that do for you? Not shit. No. <laughs> okay. It's got to be secured. It's got to be secured and it's got to be secured in such a manner that it is that you have a remedy if the other side defaults. So, you know, in that type of situation, any type of agreement that we reach, I'm going to make sure that, say, these payout, payouts are going to be secured by, say, stock in the company or, you know, some other major asset. And then it's not just as easy, right, as saying, okay, well, I'm just going to secure it with the, uh, with the stock. You've got to make sure what, is the, uh, what do the actual operating documents of the business state, mm -hmm. you know, so it can well, be very complex. I've got to imagine, too, that when you're negotiating something as complex as that, there's got to be a lot of argument that goes on about the appreciation of the business. Sure. Because, you know, tangentially speaking, how much did that individual contribute to the growth of it and the, the supporting spouse? You know, what did they give up in terms of their work ethic to let them do that? So, like, how? what's the real, you know, they, I'm sure the, the, the spouse that's involved in the maintenance of the business is like, I did all this. But then again, where, is, where, where do you find that kind of parity level? That's so that's, that's a great question. And so here's the difference between being in a community property state like Texas mm -hmm. as compared to one that isn't, okay? In Texas, technically, wife could be running this multi-million dollar deal and hubby could be sitting at home on his fat ass eating bonbons and it's still community. He's still entitled to it. Doesn't matter. Sure. Now, when you get into other states where it really looks at what the contribution is of the party to the asset uh, when you're going to make a division, you know, that's a whole different subject. And that's where it gets, it gets really complex. So, you know, every once in a while, I'm going to do something outside of the state and so you really have to know what's going on. That's the reason you always make sure that you've got the right folks with you. And if I was going to be negotiating something like that, I'm going to have a corporate law specialist that is involved that's going to be looking at all the corporate documents to tell me, hey, can we do what we want to do as things are right now? Or do we have to amend the corporate documents? What do we have to do to actually make sure that my client is secured? 
And then I'm going to have a person like you there that is telling me this is what's important or that's what's important. And I shouldn't say telling me that, but telling my client that or our mutual client that so that they understand, hey, things might look great for five years, but you're going to be sucking air in 15 years if you don't do this. Mark, I think it's time for our uh, newest segment to play. What uh, what state should I live in if I'm a business owner? That's exactly right. <laughs> because I think that uh, you're making me nervous as a business owner myself that if I'm in Texas and I'm married for longer than 10 years, that you know, no matter what I build this thing to over the course of my life, and uh, I love my wife dearly, no, no concerns, no complaints, but you never know what can happen in this world. So I guess my question to you is, uh, off the cuff, what state would, would you live in if you're going to consider moving? Boy, it depends on which which side of things you're on, you well, know. Course. So sure. I'm, you know, I think Texas is a great state um, in that regard. You don't have income taxes, but the uh, there's been a proposal, as I understand it, to have an income tax in Texas, um, and our property taxes are are way out of whack uh, for you know just about everywhere else in the country. But uh, with the cost of living and everything, even you know people people look at certain places around Dallas. Um, and thank God it's expensive. I, I tell you what, man, it's nothing compared to being on the East Coast, West Coast, Well, actually, Chicago. I, actually, it's beginning to become a problem because I have a dear friend in Austin, and he owns Well, a, yeah, I was going to throw a caveat say, out there because Austin's a whole different Little deal. California, yeah. a.k.a. Austin now, right. and that's really interesting because this real estate market is out of control. Uh, it is something that is very eerily reminiscent of a bubble, and, of course, we had regulation back in 08 to, to stop the people, you know, your run-of-the-mill stripper, as you, to, to reference the um, big short who owned five houses and a condo and had three, you know, two or three mortgages on each property. That's no longer available because of Dodd-Frank. Right. However, uh, I think we're starting to see kind of another, another bubble popping up because you have all this equity exiting these very, very affluent areas. Right. And Austin properties now, I have a friend who put an offer in for a $685,000 house. He bid $775,000, so nearly $100,000 over asked. He was the fourth highest bidder. Oh, my God. And so there was a house last week I saw that was an $825,000 house, sold for $1.25 million. Yep. So we're looking at definitely the precipice of something that's very scary in that market. And that leads me to a question for you. you know, what are you seeing with some of your clients right now who have significant real estate assets because – on the primary residence side, mm -hmm. it's very, if you sell your house, yeah, great premium. But where, where do you go? go? <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's that's the real question is well, how are you dealing with that yeah. unknown? Because that holds like a real financial liability and also just safety you know, respect for that person finding another residence. Right. You know? Yeah, it's hard right now. I mean, now here's the, here's the thing. We've got all kinds of things that are in place right now to keep uh, foreclosures at bay while we're in the midst of all this COVID deal, right? Sure. So, well, you know, I think this is this is normal, you know, normal supply and demand economics right now in that there's just not enough stuff on the market. If we didn't have uh, this stopping of the foreclosure process throughout the country, I think you would find that there would be a huge amount of inventory that would be on the market. So my guess would be, um, I think everything's going to, my guess would be everything third quarter, fourth quarter really starts picking up in the foreclosure market um, where they aren't going to, you're not going to deal with wrongful foreclosures and all that kind of crap. And so I bet for the next, you know, 12 to 18 months after that, um, that you are probably 
going to have, if you got the cash, you got real buying opportunities. Oh, well, of course. But and I would hate to be that guy that paid 1.2 for an eight and a quarter house, because guess what? That value is going back to eight and a quarter. Oh, it is. And you, you lose all this equity. And from a lending perspective, you have to bring all that cash to the table. Yeah. I, that. I was talking to, um, I was talking to a, uh, realtor and mortgage buddy of mine the other day. And, uh, they were saying, so, you know, generally you have, um, you have your financing clause in the contract, right? That you have the ability as the buyer to void the contract if the house doesn't appraise where you can get financing, right? Mm -hmm. They are now getting rid of those. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, that's what it is. And if it doesn't appraise, not my problem. Seller, you're going to be the one who has to actually pay for all that crap. Well, that's going to be a rough day. By the way, I do want to promote this fantastic (laughs) Isopure protein drink that I am, I'm out there, Isopure. I'm looking at you and hoping that you're going to be sponsoring our program. Now, back to what we were talking about. <laughs> I think the thing that I want to talk about on, on the real estate realm is talking about one of the scariest things for a lot of people that I've been talking to is the inflation idea. Right. And the Fed signaled yesterday in their meeting that they actually see economic recovery beginning to happen. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the, the major headlines and CNN, all the other major coverage, they're saying that the pandemic is ending. It is getting to a point where it's coming over and we're going to now be dealing with the repercussions of that. Right. So I think that when you see interest rates start to rise again, my question to you, I know you're not as, uh, I guess, uh, as technically minded as I am in the markets, but you right. still are, are a very good student of it. What do you see happening in the, in the general economy over the next 18 months? Ooh. I see that I'm probably over-invested in tech right now. <laughs> well, you're experiencing been, that right now. Yeah, because so. <laughs> I'm taking a little bit of a bath. But, you know, but so for me, that was a real question of, you know, do I sell some, some of mine and, uh, and you know, reposition it in some others? So I've gotten into some other stocks and stuff. And what I came down to was, no, I'm not going to sell any of the tech that I've got, simply because I think they're all good companies. It's not like I was going in and buying GameStop, <laughs> you know, on this recent bullshit. Um, uh-huh. So I, I would tend to think anything associated with travel is going to be hot for 18 months, you know? Um, Airbnbs, you know, your hotel chains, you know, WAP, you know, air, all the airlines. I think this is really interesting. I'm glad you brought this up because there's a lot of people that, even non-clients of mine who are saying, hey, I have cash in the sidelines. Right. Which is actually quite a few people. Yeah. But also, the people who are invested are so scared right now. Oh, yeah. There's so much fear. And I have heard more about stop losses from my clients in the past two weeks than I've heard in my entire career. Like, can right. you put a stop loss in this portfolio? Like, have you not learned anything for the, in the past five years that we've been together in terms of, like, it's not about, I would never recommend anybody unless you are some sort of incredible soothsayer, crystal ball reading savant right. that you should pull all of your money out of the market. So I think you've done the right thing. It's really about if you're worried about what's happening in stocks and how overvalued they are, just reduce your exposure. Right. You know, add, add, there's actually a lot of really interesting places to place money right now. That so are, let's talk about that yeah. a little bit because that is something that, you know, that I get asked about. Well, what should I do on this? And I'm like, look, man, you need to talk sure. to your, you know, <laughs> to your wealth management person on that. But that's a question I have. It's like, okay, I don't want to sell any of the tech that I've got because I think they're all solid companies and they're going to be, you know, long plays. Um, but I'm not putting any more money into tech right now. I'm, sure. I'm wanting to put it in, in, in different areas. So, so as someone who is a student of the market, and this is what you do day in and day out, I mean, what makes sense 
for you. And let's talk about two different scenarios, okay? Sure. What makes sense for the person who is making 150000 a year? Maybe they've got a, you know, a quarter million sitting in different retirement funds or some, you know, some combination like that. And then what, what makes sense for people that have significantly more than that? So starting off with our $150,000 case study, I actually just sat down with a, a dear friend of mine who approached me and said, hey, I need some help. I need to get organized. So right. I think that the initial thing is that you need to understand how to daily or data-driven rate your risk. So that's the first thing that I would talk to, and I would encourage anybody that doesn't know how to do that to go out and find somebody who can help you. Because right. if you don't know in your mind intuitively – what your risk tolerance is. And I can tell you this, it is so much easier to say that you're able to take a risk on a GameStop, for example, but then the fear of loss is what kills everybody. Absolutely. Right? So I think from, a, from that from perspective, if you're younger, you know, it's easy to say $150,000, $2,000 in the account, you know, it, it depends on how old they are, right? Exactly. Yeah. Time, time value of money is huge. Yeah. Time horizon is huge. So I think first and foremost, if you're at two fifty, dollars dollars you know, $200,000, it's really about being patient right now. I think dollar cost averaging into defensive stocks and what dollar cost averaging is, is that taking in a portion of your money each month if you have cash in the sidelines and putting a small chunk of that to work over a time period is right. really important. Uh, number two, I think it's really about just, I'm a big believer in the, in the value to investing. So if you are wearing Nike from head to toe, and you buy all your things on Amazon, it's not a terrible idea from a core perspective of your portfolio to own those stocks. Right. But not in a, a massively meaningful way because right. if you over-own those things, as we've been feeling in tech in the tech rotation right yep. now, that's a, that's a scary thing. But on the on the more affluent side, which is where we work, so I, I wish I had more guidance on a smaller portfolio, but I think that I would, I would give this advice to anybody. Unless you really are financially illiterate, I don't really see the value in working with an investment advisor until you have about a million dollars of investable assets because we're expensive. Right. And you're paying for a very detailed services bespoke and the technology and resources that are out there for people that are, have under a million dollars in assets, you can pretty much replicate something that will cost you a lot more because advisors have to make their money. Exactly. Right? And I'm happy to tell you that if you came to me with a half a million dollars, you know, I I want each one of my clients to to, to net my my firm between twenty to thirty thousand dollars per year in revenue. Right. And if you have a half million dollars, I can't even get there in a reasonable way of, of charging you that fee. So that was my quick uh, plug on that. I know it's kind of a self contradictory to tell people to go away and not use me, but I just think it's important to know. But um, going back to our initial question on the wealthy side, I actually really love cryptocurrency. I know that might sound pretty bizarre to you. No, I get from, it. I kick myself because I could have I could have bought Bitcoin at if, five or seven thousand. If you are worried <laughs> about the inflation risk, which yeah. so many people are right now, own assets that are completely countercyclical. The gold is always a great safe haven. But gold, from a strategic standpoint, i.e., longer than a year, mm -hmm. is one of the statistically worst investments you can make from an appreciation standpoint. Right. It holds its value, but inflation adjusted, it's a <laughs> terrible investment. Right. It's shitty. But cryptocurrency, if you're willing to stomach the volatility, I think it's a really unique tool for a couple reasons. First and foremost, universally accepted, right? You have every single currency can be converted into Bitcoin and then vice versa. So let's, let's talk about that for just a second because sure. everybody's familiar with Bitcoin, but there are many, many, many other cryptocurrencies, okay? So Ethereum was one that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I remember reading stuff a long time ago about... Um, 
you know, that it probably was actually a better platform than Bitcoin. Uh, it was, you, it was you could settle. Yeah. A lot faster. faster. faster so aside from, aside from Bitcoin, what are the other, you know, the other ones that people should look at? There, there's just, there's just so many. Now I, I will, the biggest disclaimer is, is that there are a lot of fraudulent companies out there. I actually personally, myself and a group of investors back in 2018, which was called the emergence of the Ethereum uh, blockchain backed uh, ICO space, which is initial coin offering. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a bit of a prospector's paradise. You know, you could throw money into these coins that publish these things called white papers. Mm-hmm. And the white paper said, we're going to do this with this money when you ICO us, i.e. investors bring in Ethereum or Bitcoin, fund the company, and the coin gets published, and that coin gets used for a specific task. It sounds basic, but there was about 90, 92% of it was fraud. And we actually, my group of investors actually sued a guy, and we got a judgment of quite a bit of money, my more, my, quite more so than what we invested based on the, the loss potential in this space. My first disclaimer is be careful. Uh, do your research. Um, I think that if, you're a very, if you don't have the time to dedicate to it, a very slippery slope to try to buy what are called altcoins. Yeah. So the non-major players, Ethereum, Bitcoin, Ripple, Litecoin, those are the ones that are more recognizable, but there are some great plays. All right. I, I think that um, the one, the ones that my clients that are coming to me, you kind of have this two-sided coin, right? When your taxi driver starts talking about stock tips, <laughs> that's one of those things that you got to be concerned about. And right. the people that I know are less technologically savvy, have the, you know, not really the the wherewithal to understand how to properly go through the process of owning Bitcoin, which is actually quite strenuous in a yeah. way. It makes me nervous. Yeah. So um, happy to talk about that. We, I'm sure we can get more into that another yeah, time. Yeah, let's get into that another time in a little bit more detail. Let's sure. talk about something else that everybody's been facing. So we're about to, we're kind of coming out of COVID a little bit. You know, some people have... <sighs> Some people have what I will say lived more than others during COVID. Um, You know, you have all kinds of different views from those people that think, um, you know, that it is the worst thing that is that could have ever happened uh, to others that doubt its existence. You know, Mark, did you have it? I did. Okay, so did I. So we let you go from that basis. Yeah. So you know, it sucked for about five days, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I got a little more uh, a few days later, and it wasn't it wasn't pleasant. But that's me, you know, and uh, the thing that has is amazing to me with with this thing is how it has affected so many people differently. And, uh, you know, and and I think the reasoning why it it has been so different, you know, is still somewhat of a mystery um, because it's so new. You know, we'll probably know a hell of a lot more in in five years. It's very experiential. You know, you've got people that have had loved ones pass away. I mean, it, I cannot imagine what the survivor's guilt would feel like if you contracted COVID carelessly, brought it home to a family that has, you know, grandparents, older parents, and right. lost those people. So I think it's really kind of shameful if anybody doubts the severity of the disease right. and those have experienced the severity of the disease. Exactly. Um, in terms of shutting down the country, I think we're really Oof. on a scary slope here in terms of dictating what a free individual can do in this country. Yep. And that's what makes me the most concerned. Yep. If you have fear of this disease, I think that you should make an effort to protect yourself. I agree. And that is not the responsibility of the government beyond, I'd say, a reasonable approach, not that the vaccine is out, to continue locking business down. I'm really proud of Texas for opening up now that there's – people can take the risk on their own accord. That's all what life is about. Well, and I – 
I don't disagree with that about the business side. I think, I think it was a little stupid, frankly, of Abbott to, you know, you've got the vaccines rolling out and now it's like, we're going to take the masks off and everybody's back at a hundred percent. I don't necessarily have a problem with saying you're back at a hundred percent from a business standpoint, because then it's really buyer beware as far as I'm concerned, you know, and if you, sure. if you're worried about it, don't go. If you're not worried about it, go ahead and go. So, but it would seem to me because it would seem to me that it would make more sense to still have, uh, and this is kind of, you know, I, I think this is really kind of an academic conversation anyway, because I think, what is it, over 90% of businesses have all said that, no, we're still going to require masks for a period of time until you really get a higher number that are actually vaccinated and and I mean fully vaccinated have this have the second one unless you've been one of the ones lucky enough to get Johnson's uh, Johnson and Johnson's one time go here but uh, but what I wanted to talk about in that it's when I said some people have lived more so like you know I've gone on uh, done some different things now my daughter is in you know is in law school and it's just my wife and I, I my my mother is older but she has been in uh, she lives you know around us too she hasn't traveled um, I am careful. I'm around her, uh, you know, fairly frequently. And when I have traveled, I haven't gotten around her, you know, close to that. Now I haven't had any repercussions from the traveling. And, um, but what I, what I have seen is, and as I think just about everybody knows, there's been a huge uptick in, you know, divorces, family violence, child custody matters, all these kind of things during COVID because, you know, there are just so many different ramifications the of isolation it. Isolation probably is one of the biggest. It's it's things. a combo plate, right? So it's the isolation. We as much of a lone wolf as you might think you are, and I would say that that's probably more me. Um, most people who meet me would not think that I am really pretty damn shy, actually, um, because I don't come across that yeah, way yeah, a that, lot of the time. That is not one word I'd use this right. You. But there's a part of me that is. So I'm a, re- a an interesting mix between, you know, an introvert and an extrovert. You do know, you savor your alone time. As I do saying, absolutely. Right? That that's something that I've definitely seen people's uh, complaints rise about is that if you're around somebody so much, I don't care if they're the love of your life. I think everybody needs their semblance of own time and they also people really require the input of and, and feelings of other people the diversity of interaction is so important well that is huge and so i think you i think you hit it on hit it on the head so i like i do like my alone time but i only like so much of my alone time sure. because you know like it or not lone wolf whatever you want to call it we are social animals and we are animals right mm-hmm. <laughs> break it all down we're animals and we are social animals so it's like, you know, a prisoner who is put in solitary confinement for an extended period of time. Why do they do that? Because it is a heinous punishment. Oh. And there have been lots and lots of studies about the psychological damage that that does to people. Well, guess what? We got some of that same kind of shit that is going on now because people have been forced to be locked up. And if they're by themselves, it makes it really bad, you know. But if you've got crazy plus crazy in the same house... Oh. It doesn't come out sane, right? It doesn't. <laughs> I, I guarantee you, I, I know for a fact I've had friends, both women and men, that have told me that they feel like they're in jail right now in certain yeah. ways because they're just stuck with a house full of kids uh, that are spending far too much time with each other. And that's, it might sound sad to say out loud, but it's just the real truth. It's just, you get, you tire of everybody in too high of a dose, I believe. I think you're right. And it's one of those things where I think reason that my wife and I are so compatible is that I had to have a mate 
that was somebody who could exist independent of me. Exactly. And they can entertain themselves. And she and I love spending time together. And her, her love language is quality time. Yeah. So I, we spend a lot of time together. But it's just so nice and refreshing when we can get out. And, and it, like you guys, we actually have upticked quite a bit of our travel. I mean, I, I've been on uh, 20 flights this year so far. Right. So I, I think that I've had, I've had COVID. It was really tough. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Exactly. And I, uh, I understand the severity of it. But I'm conscious of mask precautions, you know how to sanitize, but going back to that one topic you did say was that I do think that businesses are in their right and should mandate masks for some more time. I'm with, yeah, I'm, and that's up to the business yeah, owner. it is, and that's fine. You know? If you want to enter a private property, you got to follow the rules. Right. I'm actually very happy that we wear masks in the grocery store now. Yeah. And that we wear masks in a, in a, in a doctor's office. It's always so foreign to me that we went into the sick waiting room and everybody's yeah. just out there with no masks on. So what is going on here? This is, this is against doctors are supposed to be smart. We need to be right. isolated. So right. yeah, I think it's, it's one of those things in life where COVID's really taught us a lot about ourselves. Yeah. And it's been, it's been interesting. There's no question. It is, uh, it can bring out the best and it can bring out the worst. You know, I saw some, I was really happy to see when we had, you know, Snowmageddon here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and the number of people that really banded together um, to care for people that were without heat, you know, without water and stuff like that. I mean, we had, with our office in Frisco and Dallas, we had different employees that were, you know, some barely got touched. Um, I was lucky we barely got touched. Um ruined some pool equipment, but aside from that, that's the extent of it. Um, but a lot of others were, were missing out on stuff or had, you know, had pipes that burst or were afraid that that was going to happen. And they, you know, banded together and did stuff together. And I saw that with lots of other people where they had, you know, pipes burst and, and doing things like that. So the ability to act, you know, in a positive humanitarian fashion is still out there. It's just tough when you're with that person day in and day out. Cause like you said, I think you get someone, Here's a good example. I love my daughter more than anything in the world. When all this shit came down was at uh, spring break of her first year in law school, okay? So she, that came down. She was with us. She stayed with us until sometime in the summer. And I told her, honey, I love you, but I am ready to love you from afar, okay? <laughs> and, but that's the kind of thing, right? Oh, it, you know, so. Well, it's hard to, I mean, I think your daughter probably falls in the, in the Gen Z. I got to be the first to admit as a, as a proud millennial that I'm happy there's a generation that's more weird than us. So it's one of those things where uh, there's a different language. And it, when you go from generation to generation, it's really challenging. I actually, my uncle, I lived with him for three months during the summer, and he called it the summer of Andrew. And when I was, uh, I was straight out of the fraternity, and uh, he was going through a breakup in his life. So it was almost like a, uh, a modern reimagination of, uh, of a Huckleberry Finn. You know, we were, I was this uh, pretty rough around the edges kind of college kid who was learning the ropes of a more a genteel guy's life. And he was going through a tough breakup. We kind of brought each other up and down in different ways. But we always, I think this will be a time for a lot of people where, yes, we spent a lot of time together. However, we've probably grown in our relationships throughout this time. Yeah. And probably learned boundaries a little bit better. Yeah. I think that having this entire amount of, uh, of overtime with each other in close confinement we found each, uh, ways to reconnect and learn more about one another too. So that's, that's the positive side of that. So. Yeah. Well, let's, I think we're kind of running out of time here. 
today. I'm looking forward to doing a lot more of these. But if there was one thing that you were going to leave people with today, kind of a parting shot, what uh, what would it be? Wow, profound question. Put me on the spot. Um, I think that right now I have to make it kind of topical in my field. Sure. I just want to let people know that we are <laughs> probably okay for right now mm-hmm. and not to be as concerned about their money in this, in this point in time. Um, make sure that you are cautious but not greedy right now. And th- at the end stages of a market like this, there's a lot of opportunity to make a lot of money. Right. But also a lot of opportunity to lose a lot of money. So yep. remember that the, the race is long yep. in this thing and, and to be cognizant of that. So I'd love to turn the question back around on you. Sure. So I'm going to use a phrase that I use all the time, uh, which is don't press send. Okay. So that goes to, uh, there is uh, another another phrase that goes right along with that. Um, you know, nothing, uh, nothing will benefit you more than restraint of tongue and pen, okay? Uh, I know that very well myself because, uh, you know, I can tend to knee-jerk every once in a while. Sure. But once that shit is out there, whoever said the, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me Therefore, was full of shit, okay? Because words do damage, you know? I think sometimes, well, exactly. And, you know, everybody's looking for a reason to get outraged now, which is just laughable to me. Um, You know, but I would say, you know, be wary of, have some spatial awareness, be aware of the people around you and be kind. It doesn't take, you know, any more effort to be kind, put a smile on your face than to be a dick. (laughs) It's easy to be a dick. Yeah. I think the one thing that would be a good tip for anybody who has the issue of wanting to fire off the send button. Yeah. I learned this not too long ago, but in your Outlook settings, your email settings, you can actually create a command. It's very easy. And when you send an email, it puts a pause on it for 60 seconds. And it puts in your outbox, and then it sends it. So if you are hot in the trigger, right, you can actually fire off an email, push send, and then when you think, oh, boy, what did I just do? Go to your outbox and stop that thing. Whatever time limit you want to set. It can be half right. a day, full day. Um, that's a really powerful tool to help people that have that issue. Okay, we need to make note of that. And, uh, people, if there's one thing we should leave you with, it is uh, Andrew's advice there. That is fantastic. It will keep people from knowing what an asshole you are. <laughs> okay? So thanks for joining us at Love & Money, first edition. Andrew, thank you. Thank you, Mark. That was a ton of fun. Uh, Folks, we're going to do this probably once a week, once every couple of weeks. Um, But take a look, take a listen, tell people about it. If you've got questions, send something to something to Andrew at. Andrew at Paragon Private Wealth Group. We'll have it right down here in the video. And we appreciate your time today. You can also send stuff to us at uh, Mark at Scroggins Law Group or info at Scroggins Law Group. Thanks, guys. Always fun. Awesome, man. That was good. Yeah. I think it's easy to do. A little free balling. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, I liked it. <laughs> thank you, thank yeah, you. Absolutely. It's going to be, f- I think if you do design a new studio, it'd yeah. be really fun to be kind of like more next to each other. Yeah. So, so here's here's the reason I had nothing. Like I've got That's fine. horrible neck problems right now. Okay. So keeping my neck like that. Um,